0: Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The Book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do. And how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do When she really puts her mind to it, it also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.
1: Welcome to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. This season will be dedicated to feasting on the enigmatic Old Testament book of Zechariah. Based on the Old Testament research... Of author and historian Reed Simonson, and his book, Zechariah and the Teachers of Righteousness. It's volume four in his epic series, The Gospel Feast. Zechariah is an excellent book to test out our Eastern thinking skills. As our audience is also expanding, we understand that many of you may not be familiar with the concepts of Eastern thinking, nor our approach to feasting on the Word of God together. This podcast is designed to build on itself. So, if you are feeling a little lost, know that you will benefit by starting with season one, episode one, and enjoying your way up through the episodes. Either way, let's begin our feast in this amazing book of Zechariah. Welcome to season four. The book of Zechariah has been called the most mystical book of the Old Testament and the apocalypse of Judaism. The great Rabbi Rashi once said, The prophecy of Zechariah is extremely enigmatic because it contains visions resembling a dream that require an interpretation. We will not be able to ascertain the full truth of its interpretation until the Messiah, our teacher of righteousness, comes to us.
0: Words like enigmatic and mystical mean different things to gods and demons. Both sides consider themselves mystics, because both sides have their mysteries. God's mysteries are endowed from on high, and therefore a gift. An endowment is a gift that is often connected to an inheritance. Children of God have claim upon their heavenly parents for a piece of their estate, but, like any endowment, there are rules of inheritance. God's mysteries are unknowable without His illumination. They are His further light and knowledge beyond the ordinary. In English, we would say that God's mysteries are holy. Hebrew has no word that means holy in the Western-style sense. Their word is Kodesh. Kodesh means uncommon or set apart from the normal. The mysteries of God are His sacred pearls. These are too often mishandled by wicked men and mocked by the self-righteous. These are mysterious because they are unknowable outside of the mercy of God, but once they are illuminated by Him, they are so sublime as to be easily understood. Satan's mysteries are the opposite. They are mysterious because they are forbidden. His seem simple and logical at first, but grow in confusion and complexity the deeper one goes. Due to Satan, the word mystery has come to mean confusion in the Luciferian doctrines. It must be so, because the end of his endowment is only a lie, lest he, the emperor, be caught with no clothes on. His peasants are told that one merely needs faith and the clothes will suddenly appear. In order to appear intelligent, one merely pretends to see the clothes. All religious mysteries rely on rites, ceremonies, and forms of initiation. God calls His ordinances the good works of salvation. They are available to all men, line upon line, as one is able to comprehend, obey, and receive them. The ultimate reward at the end is the same for all. Satan uses his rites to create a class structure where an elite caste, in the secret know subjugates lesser classes by promising them power, hierarchy, and illumination at a later time. Only those at the very top of the pyramid know that in reality there is no reward. The world has been warned.
1: Alma, chapter 30, verse 60. The devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. God has always had his mysteries.
0: The first of these came to human attention when we desired to be, as the gods, knowing good and evil. The law of opposites was a mystery to us. So were fatigue, depression, failure, pain, and death. All these were a journey into the unknown. Every enigmatic expedition needs a guide, one to mark the path, stand as an exemplar, and show the way. For most of mankind's history, This job has been handled by the prophets. There have been many poets and mystics in the ranks of righteous Israel. John the Beloved was a Jewish mystic, as were Ezekiel, Daniel, the great prophet-poet Isaiah, and as we shall soon discover, Zechariah. All of these men have been righteous teachers of the straight and narrow way. All have pointed to one greater than they who would come to make sense of all the mysteries of life, one who would give our suffering meaning one who would explain all the bewildering commandments of God, from animal sacrifice to male circumcision. The Jews still say that much of the ways of God are unknowable until the Teacher of Righteousness comes. This, the greatest of all rabbis, will also be the Anointed One. A more Hebrew way of saying the Anointed One is the Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. The book of Zechariah is unique in that it gives us the mindset of the teacher of righteousness in both the first and third person. It stands as a critique on specific events from a position outside of time, from a vantage point yet future. Like an author writing out the motivational arcs for a masterwork, Zechariah gives us a peek into the events above and beyond, those given by the characters living inside the world of the book. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nicknamed Mormons, are fortunate in that we have living prophets who have parted the heavens and revealed to us some of the mysteries of God. We have also been blessed by the gifts of the Spirit, which include the gifts of personal revelation, heavenly knowledge, and the gift of prophecy in regards to our individual stewardships. Last, but not least, we have the gift of the Holy Ghost, who has a power to comfort teach and bring all things to our remembrance, that which the Lord has said to us here, as well as that which has been forgotten by the veil of our mortal birth. Surely there have not been a people more blessed than we Latter-day Saints in this the fullness of times. Now is the time to flee from Babylon, since, like our Jewish kin of old, her days of oppression are coming to an end. We are witnessing this in our day, right before our very eyes. Thus, so much of what Zechariah has to say can also be said to us in the fullness of times. We too are like young men coming home out of Babylon. We have been invited back to the everlasting hills of Ephraim to dwell in the nest of the Lord, our El Shaddai, to rest beneath his mighty wing, tutored by his prophets. There he will be our teacher of righteousness. The book of Zechariah was written by Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the descendant of the prophet Edo between 520 and 518 BC. It is included in the twelve minor prophets of the Old Testament. The term minor prophets is unfortunate for its negative context. In terms of biblical writing, minor simply means short, as opposed to Isaiah's writings or David's prophetic lyrics, which are called major, meaning many. The Jews refer to the Minor Prophets by the more appropriate and very interesting term, the Twelve. There are at least thirty-one Zacharias known to ancient Israel. It was a very popular name. Zechariah means God remembers. The Zechariah who authored the mystical book of Zechariah was of the tribe of Levi and was therefore a priest. In the wake of the golden calf, the Lord had decreed that the priesthood in Israel would only be held by the sons of Aaron during the Mosaic dispensation. It was also a lesser priesthood in terms of power and authority. It was capable of performing all of the duties necessary for salvation, provided that the people living were faithful to their commission during their lifetimes. One of the priests' major duties was to preside over the ritual portion of the national festivals, including choosing the official lamb, whose blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the temple on behalf of the nation. In 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple and carried the kingdom of Judah into exile in Babylon. This is the event that ended the reign of the Jewish kings, brought about the Nephite and Lamanite nations in the New World, and took Daniel to the pagan harem of Eunuchs, where he would rise to become the most powerful magi in the known world. Many of the most beloved books of the Bible rotate around this event and its aftermath. Secular Christianity has no ritualistic equivalent to the Jewish temple. As such, they have no way of comprehending their desperate need for it, nor can they understand the complete devastation that its loss meant to Israel. The Lord had made it clear that Judah would remain in exile from the Holy Land for 70 years as punishment for the years of rest they had denied the land. At Sinai, the Lord had granted Israel the right to live on His Holy Land, but they had to promise to allow the land to rest from cultivation every seven years. Israel ignored this condition for 490 years, meaning they failed to do this 70 times. Numbers have mystical meaning in Hebrew. We will study them in the next episode, but consider, what does an exile of 70 years say to a Jewish mystic? Let me give you a hint. Seventy is seven units of ten. Near the end of the seventy years, the Lord sent Cyrus and Darius as heads of the Medo-Persian army to conquer Babylon. Inside the gates, the prophet Daniel officially surrendered the city to Cyrus and presented him with a personal letter from Jehovah. It had been written two hundred years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. This letter, calling Cyrus by name and revealing many future events that were impossible for anyone but God to know, greatly impressed the new king. This letter further stated that God himself had raised Cyrus up to be king of the world for the express purpose of protecting the Jews in their return to the lands of King David. Cyrus, and soon after Darius, issued the decree that the temple was to be rebuilt and the Jews who wished it could go home. This amazing letter has been preserved for us as Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. While there was much celebrating in Jewry over the official end of their exile, many of the children of Israel had built lives for themselves in Babylon. Many had learned to speak Aramaic, and many pagan traditions, such as wedding fertility cakes, and wedding rings had been added to the Jewish way of life. Ezra had changed their alphabet from the so-called old Paleo-Hebrew characters to the modern ones still used today. There, they canonized their scriptures into the official law and the prophets, with their reading direction now officially going right to left. The point is that although the Jews were free to go home after the famous Edict of Cyrus in 538 B.C., it took a while to convince the comfortable Jews to return to the rubble that had once been Jerusalem. The first Jews to return took place under King shesh The book of Ezekiel, which was written soon after the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 BC, promised the people that a temple would again stand in Jerusalem and that in many ways the glory of the second temple would outshine the wonders of Solomon's. It promised the people that the new temple would sit on a larger complex, and that an even greater standard of purity would reign. It gave the people hope that God had not abandoned Israel, despite the disastrous and humiliating defeat at the hands of the nations. The new temple would be a sign to Judah that God had not completely forsaken them in their national sin and day of trial. Salvation under the law, as promised by Moses, would once again be possible sacrifice is a law of heaven. To the Christian world, sacrifice is possible wherever one has a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But for those under the law of Moses, it was a great deal more complicated. For the Jews, a proper sacrifice requires a holy place in which to perform it, and all of the accompanying rituals that are associated with it. As such, the loss of Solomon's temple was an unmitigated disaster for the children of Israel. The restoration of Judaism as a religion, post-Babylon, necessitated the rebuilding of God's holy house. After the death of Cyrus in 530 BC, Darius consolidated imperial power in 522 BC. His new system divided the empire into manageable districts, overseen by appointed governors. Zerubbabel was named governor over the district of Yehud-Mendinata, which included Jerusalem And the former kingdom of Judah. Unlike the Babylonians, the Persian Empire went to great lengths to build cordial relations with its conquered peoples. The rebuilding of Solomon's temple was encouraged by the leaders of the empire, in hopes that it would strengthen their authority with the Jews. The high priest at the time was a man named Joshua, the son of Josedek. One of the young priests sent back to Jerusalem with Joshua to help make all this happen, was Zechariah, the subject of our feast. Another was the prophet Haggai. One of their first acts upon reaching Jerusalem was to build an altar at the temple ruins and offer sacrifice. At first the work progressed slowly. It took Zerubbabel two years to build or rebuild the foundation. Construction was continually delayed by the Samaritans, who had taken over the land when the Jews were forcefully removed. Their passive-aggressive efforts eventually reached Persia, and official support for the reconstruction ended. It took the Lord 17 years, and the efforts of Nehemiah, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and Zerubbabel, to encourage the people to push forward. You can find this in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah realized that it would be necessary to restore the protective walls of the temple before the people could really rebuild the holy house. The importance of Nehemiah's temple walls and God's calendar for the latter days has been explored at length in Volume 1 of our feast, Daniel and the Last Days. With the walls up, the work on the second temple resumed with speed. Four years later, on March twelfth, 515 BC, the second temple, also called Zerubbabel's temple, was completed. It was soon dedicated as the house of the Lord, with great fanfare. The Jews also observed the Passover with great joy. All of these events were recorded by the prophet Ezra. Despite the people's joy, and the Lord accepting the temple as his own, there was a group of Jews who were disappointed with the new building. Some of their older residents still remembered the size and grandeur of Solomon's temple. In comparison, Zerubbabel's was but a poor shadow of the original. To them it did not even begin to compare. It was true that Zerubbabel's was built on a much smaller scale and with much fewer resources. Solomon's temple had housed the Ark of the Covenant, built by the sons of Amram. This had been lost with Solomon's temple and was no longer in Israel's possession. Their histories also recorded that, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the altar had been lit by a firebolt from heaven. The temple had then been filled with the Shekinah, meaning visible glory, of Jehovah himself. It is said that the building actually glowed, even in the dark. The Jews attending the second temple's dedication witnessed none of these miracles. Many were disappointed. We have no exact description of the second temple, but details can be ascertained from various historical accounts. We know that it had two courtyards, and that the inner courtyard was about 750 by 150 feet. It had at least four gates in the walls of its outer courtyard, and at least one faced the city's street. The inner courtyard had at least two gates, various chambers surrounding the temple in both courtyards. The storage of equipment, vessels, and tithes were in the outer courtyard storerooms, and there were also rooms for various high officials on the property. The building was made of hewn stone, with wooden beams reinforcing the walls from the inside. The temple was about 90 feet high. It did contain a holy of holies, but the exact room was empty since Moses' Ark of the Covenant and Solomon's golden cherubim had been lost. The new altar sat to the side where Solomon's had been. Yet the prophet Haggai had prophesied that this new temple would one day have a magnificence to outshine the glory of Solomon's. You can see that in Haggai 2, verses 3-9. through It was acceptable to the Lord as a house of his saving works, a holy place worthy of performing all the necessary works of salvation. Here
1: is the promise. Haggai two, three. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Now yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jostek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you, when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts.
0: How could this be said of a holy house that was vastly inferior to the former one? This question has been a great puzzlement to the many scholars of Judaism. Their efforts to justify these words of God to some type of satisfaction is honorable but sadly lacking. Christians have a better answer. We know that it was this temple, built by Zerubbabel, which would be expanded 500 years later and renamed Herod's Temple. It was this temple that would receive the very Son of God Himself when the great Jehovah, the Bridegroom of Israel, walked its halls as a mortal man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was the promised teacher of righteousness, and He taught and healed in that holy temple. As such, it was the greatest temple yet built. Zerubbabel's temple was not as outwardly impressive as Solomon's, but it did have the greater glory of the Messiah in the flesh, preaching in its courts. This is a great honor indeed. A Brief Outline of Zechariah In order to aid in the comprehension of this enigmatic book, the following can serve as a guide in getting your mind around the larger picture. The first six chapters of Zechariah deal with a series of eight visions, which occurred on a single night. In terms of the most straightforward interpretation, these visions deal with the beginnings of Judah's return from exile, Parts of Israel's history are recounted, along with the Lord's rationale for exiling the very people that He had promised to personally mentor and protect. These visions stand as proof that past generations were forewarned repeatedly, and were therefore left without excuse when they finally pressed God's mercy beyond His patience. These visions further illustrate that Israel's God is a God with a singular plan, The redemptive schema that he uses at one point, in human history, is but a type of another which he intends to use at a future time. This pattern is a powerful illustration that he is truly the same yesterday, today and forever. He truly functions in one eternal round, one temporal now. This is a difficult concept for mortal man to comprehend. Chapters 7 and 8 were given to the prophet two years later and deals specifically with the question of whether the days of mourning over the loss of Solomon's temple and the ruins of Jerusalem should continue. It contains many words of encouragement, as the people struggled to rebuild their heritage. Chapters 9-14 through consist of two prophecies called Burdens. The first gives us an overview of God's dealings with Israel from the beginning until the coming of the Messiah. The second speaks of the glories that await Israel in the latter days. It stands as the ultimate encouragement not to give up on being Jewish. It promises the people righteousness, healing, and purity unlike any experienced in Israel before. But first, let's delve into some Jewish mysticism to better prepare us for our journey, one into the most mysterious books of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah.
1: This is wonderful, but we will have to save that for our next episode. Now is the time to flee from Babylon, since, like our Jewish kin of old, her days of oppression are coming to an end. We are witnessing this in our day, right before our very eyes. I believe so much of what Zechariah will be teaching us can also be valuable in this the fullness of times. We have been invited back to the everlasting hills of Ephraim to dwell in the nest of our Lord. There he will be our teacher of righteousness.